Hi, this is Reverend Amelia Richardson Dress, Minister for Community Faith Formation here at UCC Longmont, and you're listening to, in other words, talking to kids about the things that matter. This is a periodic season-based podcast that I do occasionally to talk to experts about the hard things in parenting. This week I'm talking with Amanda Meyer. Amanda is the project coordinator for the Conversation Project in Boulder County. The Conversation Project is a nationwide organization whose mission is to help people have conversations about end-of-life decision-making. And Amanda's going to be talking with us more specifically about how to have these conversations when you have young children in the house. When you're making end-of-life decisions and you are still raising kids, the questions that you may have and the circumstances that you might need to factor in are a little bit different than if you're making these decisions before having kids or after your kids are grown. So she's going to be helping us to unpack that a little bit. Do you mind starting by telling us a little bit about yourself and Absolutely. your work at the Conversation Project? Yeah. So um, my history is in social work and gerontology. I got my bachelor's degree in social work in 2004 and then my master's up at UNC in 2007. Um, my work history is in long-term care, mostly. Um, about six years of long-term care and acute, subacute rehab, discharge planning, case management. Um, and, and what brought me to the conversation project and to true community care um, is, is actually the seeing the day-to-day results of people not doing their advanced care planning and having to deal with that in the emergency kind of scenario. Yeah. Where maybe they can't make their wishes known anymore and families don't know what to do with that. And so I think it's really important the work to be more upstream Mm. So that when we get to these emergency situations, everybody is more prepared. Um, and so the Conversation Project itself is a national nonprofit. Uh, it started in about 2010, and it was founded by Ellen Goodman. And Ellen is a, is a famous writer. She's a columnist for the Boston Globe. And she and her mother were very close, as close as a mother and a daughter could be. And the way that she tells the story is that, is that they talked about everything. Throughout their lives, they were best of friends, and and nothing was out of bounds as far as what they they could talk about, except they never talked about what Ellen's mother would want at the end of her life and what her end-of-life wishes would be. And unfortunately, Ellen's mother got Alzheimer's, and Ellen was thrust into this caregiver role, and suddenly the decision-maker for someone that she loves very much and felt very close to but didn't have any of the directive from her mother about what she would want. And so she found herself fumbling through her mother's end-of-life experience and until her mother died, and, and that's what motivated her to look at how that could be different uh, going forward with other people. So she started the Conversation Project, and the mission of the Conversation Project really is to have people express their wishes for end-of-life and have those wishes respected. It was good to hear you mention the piece about having those conversations and the need to have them mm-hmm. early. And one of the things that I noticed in our faith, or just our series in general, our conversation project series, was that the people who came tended to be older. Mm-hmm. And yet I heard the message that we really needed to be having these conversations kind of early and often. Early and often, yep. So um, I just wonder if you could talk a little bit about how that conversation might look different if you're, say, the parent of younger children. Mm-hmm. I think the first thing I would say is that the conversations, like you said, early and often, 
are appropriate when someone turns 18. Um, it, you know, once someone is an adult, it's hard, but they should be thinking of having a decision maker yeah. and, and thinking about, well, if something catastrophic happened, what would I want and what I wouldn't want at this point in my life? And then, you know, you're at one point in your life there where you have your whole life ahead of you. And as you move through the stages of your life, things are going to change. You know, you're going to have a spouse or you're going to have children. Maybe you're going to see one of your parents die in, in a certain way that is a good death or a bad death. Mm -hmm. And that's going to affect what you might want for yourself. Um, and so having that conversation, you know, as an adult and then on milestones throughout your life, like probably when you get married, when you start to have children, um, if you're going on a cross worldwide trip, you might want to consider <laughs> having that conversation again. And eventually you're going to start having illnesses and, and it's going to change and your values, your desires are going to change every time you have one of those things come up. Mm -hmm. And so the way that I've looked at it with my own children, having experienced the death of my grandmother in my home and being my father's power of attorney before he died, was that I didn't have the exposure early enough to process, process some of that. And so with my own children, I found myself really taking advantage of opportunities to show them death in a non-hurtful, a, a way that they can process a little better. So I've always started with nature, let's say. Uh -huh. And I get a bouquet of flowers that my daughter picks me. And they're beautiful, right? And you put them in the vase and they're gorgeous and, and we all enjoy them for the five or six days that they're there. And we tend to them and hope that they stay healthy and beautiful as long as possible. But the flowers start to die. And that's a normal life cycle moment that yeah. I can visit with my children that says, you know, we enjoy these while they're here and they're beautiful, but they will die. Mm -hmm. And that's part of what makes them beautiful. Yeah. And so that's where I start with my kids, is really the nature as it relates to the cycle of life and, and the natural end to it being death. I think it's really important to integrate that young, like you were saying. Mm -hmm. Also, pets sometimes mm -hmm. provide that opportunity. They right? do. Which is hard. Yep. And, you know, moving through that grief mm -hmm. also seems like kind of a process that you can practice. Um, not that it ever gets easy, but no. that you come to become familiar with it, maybe. You come become familiar and, and your children are encouraged that you're there to answer those questions for them. That you're not afraid. And you're absolutely right with pets. Animals on the side of the road even. Mm. You know, what happened to that animal? Why is it, you know, really little kids, they're like, you know, I think, it's, I think it's really critical that we don't, and I think the research backs us up, that when we're talking about death with our children, whether it be the plant or the, you know, the animal on the side of the road or progressing all the way up to when grandma or grandpa dies, that we don't use euphemisms when yeah. we're talking about it. Because children have a very difficult time, especially when they're young, grasping the finality. And if you use things like, oh, he's just, he's just sleeping, or he just went away, he, he passed on. Well, <laughs> right. a child is sort of left with, well, when are they going to come back? Uh -huh. um, and so it's, you know, it's okay, I think, to talk to children about the finality of death, but not to expect them to understand it the first time you talk about it. Right. What about... Do you have any tips for overcoming your own awkwardness around talking about death? Again, I think you can start with small steps. Uh -huh. um, I think if, like with, with nature, with pets, with animals, don't pass up the opportunity to even say a few words about it, uh -huh. <laughs> even if that's as far as you can get that one time. Because if, if you plant the seed in your kids, 
they will come back and ask. They'll think about it, and they've got a million questions. Perhaps some of, you know, that you grow up with that, that discomfort of death, and that's, you know, part of what we're trying to, <laughs> to address now, because we're all going to see it, right? And, you know, another way to sort of integrate your children into the experience is to make sure that, you know, if, if a friend or somebody that maybe isn't close to your family but you knew passes away or dies or whatever word you're going to use, don't sh shield your child from your own grief and your own process. It's easy for us as parents to, when your child asks you what's wrong, to say, oh, nothing, I'm fine, you know, I'm fine, and want to put on a good face for that. But it's important that they get to see your own process. You know, yeah. that you're naming your emotions and that you're okay with that. And I'm sad right now. I'm going to be sad for a while because I'm not going to see my friend again. Mm -hmm. But, you know, eventually I'm going to start to feel better, but I'm always going to miss them. Mm -hmm. You know, naming it and owning it and make, letting your kids be a part of it as well. You don't have to keep them from a funeral. <laughs> you know, if you're yeah. going to go, take them. You know, and, and faith communities are a perfect example of that. You know, you're going to come and you're going to meet all of these people that you, you go to church with every Sunday and you... And they're a part of your life and your community. And some of them are going to die. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really great opportunity for parents with young children to say, these are our rites of passage when someone dies. And, and this is how we celebrate their life. And this is how we feel this emotion together as a community. Um, and that might help yeah. bring some of those discussions with a little more comfort for, for the parent. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And it's also helpful to hear just with practice, mm -hmm. it gets easier. It and does. so maybe if it's hard to say so-and-so died mm -hmm. instead of went to sleep or passed away, that um, as we become more comfortable with those conversations. Yeah, you can use that, that with that your pets too. too. I mean, I think we always say we put the dog down right? or we put the dog to sleep. You know, that's those are weird images for a child. They are, especially if they're expressions that we use. I, I mean, because we will also say... I'm going to put the baby down yeah. <laughs> for a nap oh, goodness. or, you know, so mm -hmm. some of those expressions that have dual meanings, mm -hmm. I think your point is really wise to be careful about our words. So thinking more about kind of end of life conversations, mm -hmm. at what age do you think it's appropriate to start including children in those conversations about what you might want your death to look like? <laughs> I think there's two sides to this coin. There's the, the, the side of, I don't have a terminal illness. I'm going to die some, at some point, and I'm thinking I want to talk to my kids about what I would want. I would caution that those are really heavy responsibilities uh -huh. and can be a psychological burden on someone that's not ready for it, even if they're an adult. And, and also children, especially probably 10 and under, have this amazing ten tendency to take responsibility mm. and to think things are their fault. And so I, 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 I would caution against talking to young children about what you would want at the end of your life because it puts them in a really a weird place where they might not be able to actually feel the process and the grief, but where they actually start to feel like they're responsible for that. And, you know, a medical power of attorney in the state of Colorado has to be an adult. They have to be 18. And so really the, the decision maker, that big conversation should be with someone that's an adult and sort of psychologically ready for that. On the other hand... When someone is, let's say, 12, 13, 14 years old, and that's a f somewhat common age for grandparents to start to die. Mm -hmm. you know, And so they may experience that with you. And I think it's always appropriate to, however the death proceeds with the person in your family, you know, that's not your parent, that's not that immediate close person, um, to be 
to start saying things like, well, this is grandma, the way grandma wants the end of her life to be. She's on a ventilator. This is okay with her. This isn't how I would want. Oops, this is, isn't how I would want the end of my life to be. Uh -huh. To use those real life examples to say, oh, I don't think that's what I would want. Or, you know, that's really beautiful and that's, that's something that I could foresee for myself. I think as, a, as teenagers, you can probably start to say some of those things. Now, on the other side of the coin, you would have a parent that actually has a terminal. And again, you would really want to be careful not to assign any, like that psychological burden right. of being the responsible party on your child. Um, but obviously, that's a totally different discussion. You're going to have to be open and honest and repeatedly conversing about what that looks like and, and what the child probably is most worried about you know, is who's going to take care of me. And so parents, whether they have a terminal illness or they don't, with children should certainly be thinking about the line of succession, if you will. Uh -huh. <laughs> if I were to die and my husband were to die or if I'm a single parent or this is a step family, I mean, there's a lot of things. Who is going to be the person to take care of, of my children? Do, do, do their values match mine? Um, um, are they financially able to do this? Are they willing to do it? Have we had this conversation about what this would look like? Again, it's a time to talk about, this would be my desires for my children if I wasn't here. And I think that's probably kids' biggest worry is, you know, who's gonna take care of me? If you're not here, that's what you do. You're my right. mom, you're my dad. And so comforting children through that with, with planning, you know, with your solid planning and your conversations with those around you. I mean, in a situation with a terminal illness, I think that's really the time to employ professionals, uh -huh. grief counselors, loss groups. Yeah. You can find them associated with almost any diagnosis that you might have. Hospices have them. Um, they're usually free to the community if it's a nonprofit. Okay. But you can join grief groups. You can start that process before you even die, uh -huh. you know, getting involved in those things. And, and that's a helpful reminder. I mean, that's such a hard situation to think about. But if you were in that situation, I think it's so good to know that there are resources, and mm -hmm. so you're not in it alone. No. No, it's... In fact, where we live, I think, maybe one of the most resource-rich places I've seen uh -huh. as far as support groups and, and grief counseling and, and professionals that can help us move through, you know, the impossible thing to think about. You know, <laughs> as a parent, it's just impossible. Yeah. But I'll tell you, when, when my, my first child was born and I almost died giving birth, it was imperative. <laughs> to me after he he was born that we get that done yeah I could almost not think of anything else mm -hmm. until we had dealt with that and and having that done and having talked to my husband's sister who would be the one you know that we would want to raise the kids it's such a comfort you know in my life and in, in raising children it just makes it you know I know that somebody's there that could do that right and so I think if parents <laughs> kind of recognize that in themselves they'll feel much better and so in terms of letting the kids know um, sort of who it is who might be their caretaker. Mm -hmm. Would you follow sort of the same age advice of, you know, maybe a younger teen or older tween is, is ready to start having a conversation about who would be the person who took care of you? Or yeah. would you wait for a kid to ask that question? No, I, I don't think I would wait. I think that I would preemptively say <laughs> for a young child, you know, your, your Aunt Crystal loves you and we've talked about this and you know your cousins are there they're like your brothers and sisters you know we've put this plan together and they're gonna love you like we love you you know they're gonna be your parents or they're gonna be 
you know, they're willing and they want to do this, you know, not making the child feel like that's a burden. It ended up being nine years or something, eight or nine years until finally the decision was reached. And actually people that she went to college with came out and said, hey, now we had this conversation one night. We were partying or whatever we were doing. And she told us that she would never want to live like this. And that was what it took for them to recognize that she had made some kind of wishes clear. And so that can be really, really important. And it doesn't matter how old you are. You know, an 18-year-old, an adult should be not only thinking about those conversations and those situations, making sure they have a decision maker in place, you know, whether that be their parent or a friend or whoever it would be appropriate. Um, you know, I would, I would look to real-life examples of situations <laughs> with younger people that you'd want to be prepared for. That's not an easy conversation for a parent to have with a child. I mean, on so many levels, you know, yeah. thinking about outliving your child or having to make those decisions for your child. But I think we can really empower across the generation if we can talk about it back and forth as this natural sort of human progression, mm-hmm. then we normalize things and people can, and like, and like we've been talking about this whole time, we start that when they're young, we're talking about these things the whole time. And it's never too late to start that, um, but we just have to keep you have to keep at it. Yeah. You can always use your own conversation as a, and sometimes kids are uncomfortable with that too, but you know, if your kid's 25 and, and you're ready to have that conversation with them about you and you get it out, now what about you? What do you think about this for yourself? I think that's a great technique. That's kind of where my head went too, is, <laughs> is because you are probably at a time where you may be rethinking as your kids get older, mm-hmm. your decision maker, what you want yourself. Mm-hmm. So maybe there's a way to make that a broader conversation in the family. Mm-hmm. And it's great to do as a family yeah, where everybody sits down together because you can also get like a fertile conversation going of the whole spectrum of end of life care, you know, where one person wants this and, oh no, I would never want that. I'd want this and I wouldn't want that. And none of that's wrong, right? right. Like we're not taking a side on what treatment is right or wrong at that point. We want to know what your values are <laughs> so we can inform our decision making. If you are having that conversation um, as a family, and let's say it's you know somewhat multi generational or intergenerational, mm-hmm. what are some of the questions that you would want to make sure got asked and answered? Okay, do you have a decision maker? Have you considered who that decision maker would be? You know, you can sit down with the starter kit, which is on the Conversation Projects website, and there's kind of a, a condensed version of it, and that will really help you what. What makes your life worth living to you? You know, and that's going to be different for you and it's going to be different for me. And it, it can be simple, simple things, you know, I, I want to be able to talk to my children. Well, that's fairly likely for most of the time. I want to climb up to the mountain, I want to mountain climb 14ers and life isn't worth living without that. Well, <laughs> you know, that's a different set of values and, and that could go a lot faster than the ability to talk to your children. And so you, you want to sit down in those conversations ready to address where you are on that continuum. And when you start the conversation in, in the starter kit, it's really about where you are now. You know, I, when I fill it out, I fill it out for, okay, if something happened to me and I'm in this health and I'm at this stage of my life and I was in a car accident and I went to the hospital and I was on life support. Well, heck, I'm pretty young, I'm healthy, you know, as long as things were moving in a positive direction, I would want to keep up maximum treatment, everything, to see what would happen. That's yeah. what I would want right now. Now, if they said that 
there was no hope, <laughs> that's a different conversation. And so you have to be ready to kind of play two sides of every coin. Uh -huh. um, and then grandma, who's sitting over here, is 95 years old. Well, her, her values about her end of the life is, are probably a lot different than mine. She's unlikely to want to right. spend 30 days in the ICU yeah. <laughs> doing things that probably aren't going to prolong her life anyway. And so she's going to be more interested in, well, I want to be able to interact with my grandkids or, you know, I want to be able to die at home, you know, where I might not be quite on that page yet. Right. <laughs> um, so you have to be ready to discuss your values, ready to talk about finding a decision maker that agrees with those, doesn't necessarily agree with those values, but is able to advocate for yours, whether they agree or not. Okay. Okay. So, I mean, you can have a decision maker that might not think of end of life the same way you do, but they have to be passionate about upholding what you believe. Mm. Um, so you, you know, getting that MDPOA in place, um, if, you're, if you're really like in a terminal illness state or talking with someone that's more frail elderly, you wanna start talking about you know, the different modes of life support and antibiotic treatment, hospitalization, you know, more practical end of life things. You know, do you want this, do you not want this? You know, and unpacking what's behind that. You know, you know, a lot of older people will say, I want to die at home. You know, that's the most important thing. Well, <laughs> it's really hard to keep somebody with Alzheimer's disease right. at home for eight or ten years. And so it's more about, oh, I, you know, I don't want to be in a room with another person. Or, you know, I don't want to have beeping machines all around me. And so finding out what that's really about. Mm -hmm. um, and you will find that in those conversations. Uh, when you're very fragile, you'll want to talk about a most form, which is a medical directive about whether you want CPR. Uh, you and I are young enough where pretty much, I mean, they would, if the paramedics came, they would do CPR. They would do everything that they could. Yeah. Um, but someone with a more terminal chronic illness, and that's an, that directive, that most form is only appropriate to be filling out with your doctor. Okay. And your doctor will, it's a bright green form that you'll take around with you no matter what setting you're in. It'll say whether you want CPR whether you want artificial nutrition, and really some specific medical orders. When I'm down in the nursing home, all my patients have a most form that, mm -hmm. that directs that. You can also talk with, in this conversation, about living wills. I think that there are, are benefits to living wills in making you know, your, your desires expressed. They can be confusing in the medical setting <laughs> because what is, what is a coma, you know, is this you know, you start to look about whether things are treatable or not treatable, and medical professionals can have different opinions right. on that. And so that's where this conversation has a lot more value than something you've checked on, off on a piece of paper. Yeah. You know, you have and you have these conversations with your decision maker five times in the last 10 years, they feel pretty good about knowing what you would want in this situation. Um, so yeah, you, the medical power of attorney, um, possibly a living will, you even, after you've talked about your values and all of this quality end of life, what it looks like to you, you even want to talk about the disposition of your remains because that can be a controversy in some yeah. families, you know, that may have grown up one religion and a lot of the family is still that religion and they've gone to a different religion and they cremated and they don't believe in cremation. And so if you haven't made that clear, you know, somebody's going to make that call and it could be a time for controversy and arguing rather than hey, she made this very clear to me, this is what she wants, this is what we're going to do. Yeah. So even talking about that, I think, in the conversation is a good thing. I think that's an important point. Um, I was a chaplain, and, and there was a situation where a man 
was dying. He had been put on life support. The decision that needed to be made was, are we going to keep him on life support mm -hmm. for how long, which was hard enough, but the decision that ended up holding up that decision was some unclarity about what they were going to do with his body. And this sense that, you know, his his wife was saying, no, what he wanted was for his body to be donated. Mm -hmm. um, but the kids had religious beliefs. Anyway, all that to say that there's a lot to unpack. And I think it is important to think about what you're going to do with your remains afterwards because it impacts the conversation mm -hmm. about what's going to happen before, or it, it does. can. Yeah. I mean, that was a worst case horrible scenario. No, it does. But it can. My dad, you know, when my dad died, he had a um, a genetic illness, and it was like a nerve degeneration in his cerebellum. It's a very rare disease, and so he was very much wanting to make sure that his brain was donated. Mm -hmm. And he couldn't donate anything else, but the process, like you say, around donating your brain, that's a heavy responsibility for his decision maker then to like because he was not capable of doing that, to go through the process of, okay, well, who takes it? I need the paperwork. Right. We've got to screen it to make sure it's a pro And this has to happen when he's still alive. Yeah. You know, and if he didn't, hadn't have expressed that wish to me and I'd have been able to do it, I mean, I had to make sure that I called when he went to inpatient hospice and say, you know, he's dying, he's going to die. They had to fly somebody out from Nebraska. Oh. His head had to be on ice. You know, it was all of these things right. that if, if he hadn't have expressed that to me, it wouldn't have happened. And that's yeah. what he wanted. Right. And so decision makers and, and family members generally want to do <laughs> your wishes and your values, but they have to know. And as hard as it is, there's a, there's a comfort there, at least for me, to think, okay, this conversation's hard, mm -hmm. but it, it means I get what I'm hoping for mm -hmm. or at least have a chance for that. But it also, the strife that it can cause in families if they are trying to figure out those things, mm -hmm. um, I think it's a real gift to give your family to have these conversations. I agree. It's, um, I think it can be relationship changing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, you know, you trust these people to do this for you. You yeah. know, it's like the ultimate act of love, really. And you'll have some, some people that just say that I don't care mm -hmm. what happens to me after I die. I'm dead and I don't, I don't care. Or... I, I'm not going to make these decisions about end of life because I just trust that you'll do the right thing. Well, <laughs> that's great that you trust them like that. But even if you can just make a few simple suggestions or a rough outline of, of what you're thinking, that can really help yeah. avoid the strife and, and provide a, a guideline for people. Is there anything that I haven't asked yet that you think would be helpful for people to know? One thing I think people get stuck on um, when they're choosing a decision maker and when they're thinking about doing a medical power of attorney is feeling boxed into choosing their closest family member. And over the years, I have, most of the time, that's totally appropriate and, and a great choice. But sometimes it's not. <laughs> yeah. You know, sometimes, especially if you've assigned it without having the conversation, you will find that the person that you've chosen, even though they're, they were the closest to you for whatever reason in your family, really isn't the one that's able to do that. Um, and so actually on the American Bar Association website, which is funny, there's a really neat checklist to go through about how to choose a decision maker. And it's like a, it gives you a spot for three different names and there's a checklist that's got like 10 questions and then you check by each question which person fits all of those, you know? And it may end up being your cousin or, it could be your best friend, or you can hire 
if you really, if you're going through this process and it's kind of not working and you can't find someone, there are people out there that you can hire to do this for you. And you would meet with them every year and it's not, you know, prohibitively expensive. And they really are an outside party that learns what you would want and advocates for you in that way. Faith communities are a great place to find. Mm -hmm. Because as, as my mom's generation, the baby boomers, ages, a lot of them didn't have close family members. They're aging solo. Right. Um, and so they have to really look to their friends, church congregations. And so that checklist is a really helpful tool to zero in on, oh, I wanted my son, but man, he doesn't really fill any of these boxes. <laughs> and then it's okay to tell your son. Yeah. You know, it's a, you actually need to tell your son, I've chosen this person because of these reasons. I want, you know, you to be present in that, in my end of life in a different way. Mm-hmm. I don't want you to be burdened with that. Because people feel that way too, that they're burdening the, ch the children or whoever their, their loved ones are. And usually that's not the case, but it, it's okay to choose a decision maker that's not your close family member. Yeah. And it's a similar decision process that you mentioned about thinking about where your children would go mm -hmm. if they needed a guardian, mm -hmm. that it may not be your parents, yeah. just depending on their health. It may not be your sister. You know, it... It just may be, it may need to be somebody different than the closest relative. Yeah, it could be. What if your children are 10, 12 years old and they're really like integrated in their school and their community? You know, what does that look like? Right. <laughs> For pulling them out and moving them to a different state. And it's, yeah, there are no, there are no right or wrong answers to these questions. And I think that's really important for people to understand. There's not a value judgment here. This is... This is totally personally driven by your family, your values, and what's important to you, all of these decisions. I was appreciating so much in this faith series um, with the Conversation Project, the emphasis on values, mm -hmm. which I heard differently this time around. And I think that is really a helpful way to frame the conversation over, these are the things that I want as sort of a checklist. Mm -hmm. Because of the situations where you Things are ambiguous. Sometimes. Things are ambiguous, yeah. And so it's more helpful, perhaps, for people to know, yeah, this is ideally what I want, but this is why. Mm -hmm. So if they're in that position where they're making a decision, um, and you do have Alzheimer's, mm -hmm. and dying at home isn't a realistic possibility, that they can get the next best thing yeah. for you. What can we do in this setting Yeah. to make it home? Right. Because honestly, those facilities often become that yeah. know, for people that have been there a while at end of life. and. And there are things that can be done if we know what it was about home specifically <laughs> that you loved so much. Yeah. One of the most um, interesting things that I've heard someone say that's really important, like if they were really at end of life, is I wouldn't want the sheets tucked around my feet. Uh, I hate when the sheets are tucked around my feet. And, you know, that's such like a holy crime, right. <laughs> such a little thing. But <laughs> I also hate that. And it would be really uncomfortable if I couldn't communicate and I couldn't make my needs known, if my feet were all bound up. And so it's even those, just those little things that you can, you can give your family and then in that moment they can act on them and know that they're doing the right thing. Yes. I had a friend once said to me, she said, I really just want my pets around if I'm dying. Mm -hmm. And it was an aha moment like that for me where I was like, yeah, I mean, me too, mm -hmm. if that's, you know, that's important to me, if that's a possibility, mm -hmm. that I am somewhere. Um, and again, if I'm, if I'm not at home, that I'm in a facility that allows pet visits. Yep, <laughs> that's exactly right. I mean, that's exactly what this is all about. Yeah. 
Yeah. So they're great conversations to have, even though they are hard. Yeah. I think you always, when you have them, you always leave feeling positively. Uh-huh. And, and people fear that they're going to be sad or depressed. But I, I don't ever find that that's actually the case. I, I feel that, that people leave those empowered. I feel that, they, that family members leave feeling loved, um, respected, and that, that they've been given a gift. You know, that they have some concrete things that they know they can act on. They're not going to go into this with no idea what to do. Yeah. One of the things that Constance said as we were gearing up for this series is it was great to do it before the holidays because people were going to be maybe going home and spending time with their family mm-hmm. and they could be having these conversations when they're together. Have you ever seen, do people really do that? <laughs> do they go home to the Thanksgiving table and bring this up? And how does that work? So when we did the one yesterday down in Boulder, um, there was this was the the conversation of the day because we are approaching the holidays. And when you leave this workshop, you leave with like this action plan of, you know, I've kind of thought about this. I think I'm going to ask this person to be my decision maker. And these are the things that are important to me. And this gentleman was wanted to do this with his two daughters. And, and he was asked like, you know, we're going to do it at Christmas. <laughs> <laughs> and I've tried to do this before with them and it, you know, they just get really emotional. Um, and, and one person suggested, and I thought this was really beautiful, is to write a letter to them before they come or an email. You know, you don't, sometimes that phone conversation, it can kind of, it puts up barriers and people can't get the words out with verbally and I don't know, and they just check out. So someone suggested writing just a short note or a letter saying, um, you know, I just attended this workshop or I've been mm-hmm. thinking about this because my friend just died and, you know, I'm, I'm starting to be 80 years old and I've got some health conditions. It's really important to me that um, I get to express some things to you and I'm hoping we can schedule some time while you're here. I don't, I don't think we need to do it um, around turkey dinner at Thanksgiving. <laughs> I mean, unless you want to and that's, everybody's comfortable with that. But I think a, a more relaxed time yeah. um, I think is totally appropriate and I really loved the idea of a letter to just kind of gently yes. <laughs> let somebody know something um, and give them some time to process it too because it can be uncomfortable just to spring it up you know I think a little bit of forewarning is appreciated yeah and so that maybe they can get prepared too maybe they have some things they want to say or get addressed and they can be ready for that yeah you want to be on equal footing right as opposed to I've been planning how I'm going to spring this on you yeah over. here's a really big heavy conversation <laughs> <laughs> but yes uh, I think that people do this a lot when they get together with their families over the holidays. Okay. And I think that's appropriate, you know, you're all together. And... Yeah, yeah. And I think memories often turn to family members that have died. I mean, that's I just, true too. you know, that reminiscing is happening. And so in some ways it's kind of organic, kind of organic mm-hmm. uh, to have that happen then. Yeah, you're right. Yeah. I hadn't thought about that, but that's true. Is there anything else? Let me look at my list here. Yeah, I, I wrote some other things down about children that I probably didn't cover. Um, you know, using, going from plants to animals to pets when you're talking about death and, and not using the euphemisms. Um, you know, that's also a time in faith communities to bring in what your own belief system is. Mm. You know, that's the perfect time for that. Right. Um, and that can help no matter what the faith tradition is or what the beliefs are, that can help 
that child feel a little bit more a part of that community and, and understand how that works mm-hmm. in your own community. Um, and not pushing the kids to talk about it if they don't want to talk about it because sometimes they need more processing time than we think. And even if they're quiet, there's still something, you've planted a seed, right? Yeah. But forcing them to talk about it is not, is not something that's going to be helpful to them. Um, and another thing that I've learned about kids over my time in long-term care, um, having my own kids involved in my dad's death is that it, it's okay and preferable to include them in the process. Uh, you know, grandma really is happy when she, when she's near you. Maybe we should go visit her today. Uh-huh. And not being afraid of what, you know, that person looks like or what's going on in their death process. It, you know, over time, kids have always been involved in death. That They used to hold family vigils. Kids were there, you know, 200 years ago when everybody died. That was, their friends died. It was just a normal part of life. And now we're just, like, yanking them out of it. And they have no idea what to expect. And so, you know, grandchildren down at the nursing home with dying residents painting their fingernails or mm-hmm. bringing them their favorite snack or reading them their favorite book helps them know that, they, you know, their love for their grandparent is still there and that it's reciprocated. Yeah. You know, that relationship doesn't stop because someone's dying. And that can be very psychologically harmful to a child to just pull the relationship right? because you're afraid of what death looks like to them. So I would encourage people to find ways to include their children in the dying process yeah. um, so that they can, they can feel a part of your family yeah. um, until the end. So that's it for this week's episode. I hope that this interview inspires you to have some of these important conversations with your family members and thanks for listening.